0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor of Investors Chronicle, and Michael Martin, Private Client Manager at Seven Investment Management. Investment trusts are a type of fund that have been available to UK investors for over 150 years, and have been used to invest in a vast variety of market conditions. But despite this, these days, they aren't the most popular type of fund. Dave, how much is invested in investment trusts and how does this compare to other types of funds?
1: Hi, Leonora. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's still quite a sizable amount. Um, if you look at uh, sector statistics, then the total market cap of investment trusts at the end of August, so the total value of the shares um, issued by investment trusts, came to... £171 billion. So obviously that's a lot of money. But to put it in context, if you look at open-ended funds, UK domiciled open-ended funds had something like a, well, a trillion, slightly more than a trillion of assets at the end of July. So, you know, that entirely dwarfs the amount in uh, investment trusts.
0: Okay. I mean, why the difference?
1: I mean, uh, I suppose this is quite speculative, but um, a lot of investors nowadays kind of, prefer open-ended funds because perhaps they seem a bit simpler, perhaps they're a bit easier to access in some cases. And also what's interesting is investment trusts have uh, really become very popular as a way to get more kind of esoteric illiquid assets, things like property, infrastructure. But I think often it seems to be the case that uh, open-ended funds are more popular when it comes to mainstream investing. So, you know, something like an equity fund.
0: Okay. I mean, is there a reason for that? Are are you better avoiding investment trusts when it comes to investing in mainstream assets, such as major equity markets?
1: I mean, I I can definitely understand why people might go for the open-ended route. Like I said, it seems a bit simpler. There are certain complications when it comes to buying investment trusts. But as we're kind of arguing this week in this week's issue, um, you should definitely also consider the investment trusts because, you know, they have plenty of um, advantages versus their open-ended peers Um, so you know their performance has been very good in the last decade or so and uh, there are some reasons for that some advantages Uh, you have gearing where trusts can borrow um, money um, which open-ended funds can't do so basically investment trusts can borrow money and then use that to get greater exposure to uh, the assets they like so If those assets are gaining price, they're basically getting sort of more bang for their buck. They're getting better returns. Um, And there are also just things like liquidity. So as we actually discussed on last week's show, um, investment trusts have fewer liquidity problems because their shares are bought and sold in a secondary market. So if if I pull out an investment trust, the manager doesn't have to sell off their assets to give me my money back. And that means if, if a manager, fund manager runs both an open ended fund and a similar investment trust, often the investment trust can, um, buy more illiquid assets, things like smaller companies, and that, that can boost returns sometimes.
0: Okay. I mean, that sounds good, but, um, are there any risks to, um, these structural differences?
1: Yeah. I mean, there are definitely things to be aware of. So with the gearing. I mean, trusts often actively manage how much debt they've got. But if you have gearing of greater exposures to the market, that's wonderful if the market's going up. But equally, if the market's coming down, then you're going to um, extend your losses. Also, I guess another complication of investment trusts is uh, around the share price. So with an open ended fund, you buy, you know, a unit and you're kind of getting the price you're getting. With investment trusts, the share price can move around all the time. Um, So you just have to be kind of aware, you know, that that can be an advantage. You can try and buy cheap. But, um, you know, also the share price might not perform well.
0: Okay. So in view of this, um, what kind of investors are investment trusts suitable for and in what kind of situations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say clued up investors who are quite savvy, um, who are aware of those issues that I've, you know, gone through. But one thing we're looking at this week is the the idea that perhaps some investment trusts could be used almost as a kind of bargain play on a kind of unloved area. So as, as I mentioned, you have share prices. Investment trust share prices can really reflect how investors feel about a certain area. So if the investment trust might be doing great, but if it's in a, a region investors are feeling a bit iffy about, then uh, that share price can come down and you, know, you might be able to buy at a cheap price.
0: So double bargain.
1: Yeah, Yeah. hopefully, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Is a trust perhaps, what would be an example of a trust that might be a good option for exploiting such an opportunity at the moment?
1: One particularly unloved market that a lot of investors seem to really hate at the minute is um, Europe, but uh, some funds can still make quite decent returns. One manager we've looked at is um, John Bennett at um, Janice Henderson. He runs uh, some open-ended funds, but... uh, we're looking at his um, Henderson European Focus Trust. Both the trust and its open-ended equivalent have done quite well in recent times. I guess one advantage here is, um, you know, John Bennett tries to be really active to kind of stand out and make different calls to his peers, different calls to the market. And with the trust, you're getting a slightly more unconstrained, um, I guess, form of John Bennett's investing. Um, and he, he's giving you a bit more kind of smaller company exposure.
0: Thank you, Dave, and see this week's big theme for his other investment trust suggestions for exploiting unloved markets out of favor areas and higher yields. This week's Portfolio Clinic features a retired couple who don't yet receive estate state pensions so rely on investments and savings for income. Their investments are held in a number of different accounts, including self-invested personal pensions, SIPs, and individual savings accounts, ISAs. So to try to minimise the amount of tax they pay, they draw the income from various of these different accounts. Michael, if savings and investments form all or part of your retirement income, which types of accounts should you draw from first to minimise the amount of tax you're liable to?
2: Well, there's basically a, a philosophy that pensions should be first in, last out. So the first thing you invest in when you are first starting out in your journey to retirement is you put money into pension. And you keep it in there for as long as possible because of the tax advantages. There's no CGT. It grows without any dividend tax and it's outside your estate for inheritance tax. You shouldn't be bringing that money into your estate unless you need it. So try and spend everything in your estate before you draw on your pensions.
0: Does it ever make sense to draw on your pensions before other accounts such as ISAs or unwrapped investments?
2: Well, it depends on... There is a, there is a. Mm. I would say there's a practical and a theoretical answer to so this. The theoretical answer is try and keep uh, pensions as out of the estate for as long as possible for tax purposes. The practical version is there's a certain level you don't want your Isis to go down to, mm. so you wouldn't want your Isis to go down to a certain level because I wouldn't want to put my my entire financial future in the hands of pensions legislation mm. because let's say you'd run down your your Isis and your um, portfolio you only had your pension and then a new government came in and changed the rules, mm-hmm. you'd be in serious trouble. So there's certain levels I think the practicalities dictate to, okay, and that would depend on the individual.
0: Yeah, well, what about the tax-free lump sum? I mean, would you suggest taking that before the ISAs?
2: So the the answer to that is, um, so the tax-free cash is no longer called tax-free cash. In 2010, they changed the name to Pension convention Lump Sum. My view would be at some point that might lose its tax-free status but currently it is tax-free. So it's, it's a balance on when you actually take the, the lump sum. Uh, my view would be take it about 70. The reason you take it about 70 is it's outside your estate for quite a long time. Then you take it with your 70, you can gift it to someone else and you live possibly seven years and life expectancy may dictate you probably live to 77. You don't want to wait to 75 because then you have to live to 82 and there's less chance of that happening. So Try and keep the tax-free cash out of your estate for as long as possible. But when you bring it in, have a plan for it. Otherwise, if you bring it into your estate, you die, you pay 40% tax on it. It's not tax-free anymore.
0: Okay. Now, Vise Reader's um, portfolio is focused on higher yielding and dividend-paying investments. Yes. Are Visa always the best option for generating retirement income?
2: No, not really. I think uh, Chris in the in the magazine sort of touched upon it, which I think is is, is exactly the thing. This natural yield thing that that um, Sandy has mentioned here, it's, it's quite an old-fashioned way of looking at it in that you, the natural yield will be the dividends. And I'm not sure what's held within an ISO and what's not because I, I couldn't quite work that out. But anything outside an ISO will be taxed, a dividend tax above the £2,000 they both have. Mm. So they're paying tax they don't necessarily need to. They should be looking at something which is more of a total return and then use their capital gains tax allowance to try and make it a little bit more tax efficient. Because the of revenue, don't give us many things, but try and use it, everything that you have. Use your mm. pension allowance, your dividend allowance, your capital gains tax allowance, your ISO allowance, everything you can to pay as little tax as possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, if your investments are pretty much totally in SIPs and ISAs, is it still worth doing that? Because obviously, all right, they don't incur... CGT either, but then you're not using the CGT allowance, or you know maybe offsetting losses, which you can do with unwrapped investments.
2: Well, yes, so uh, well, I think t- t- the tax efficiency of ISAs are always the best thing to have. So if you can have all your money into ISAs, yes, you won't be able to offset any capital losses, but then you won't have any capital gains to offset it. So you'll be tax neutral no matter what happens. So I think. If all your money is in ISAs and pensions, you should be reasonably happy not, not having something that utilizes those allowances because you've done so well. You know, there's many people with a million pounds in their ISAs now. What I do always caveat people with is people seem to think ISAs are the most tax-efficient things in the world, but forget they'll pay inheritance tax on them. Mm. There's no point in just paying into an ISA and then holding it for the whole of your life and then dying and paying 40% tax. If you don't need your ISA, give it away. Just give it to someone and live seven years. You don't get, you, obviously, you can't give away the ISO itself, but in cash it and give it away. It's not very tax-efficient if you die and you get taxed to 40%. It is tax-efficient if you're actually going to use it. So either use it or do something else with that money. But I see a lot of clients who are just who, who hold on to these ISO portfolios because they're so tax-efficient with no goal for them.
0: Now, these readers also hold some venture capital trusts, VCTs. Um, These are funds uh, which pay tax-free dividends. Are they a a really good option for income and retirement?
2: I think it depends on your sophistication, your knowledge, and your most importantly, your attitude to risk, how much risk you want to take, because these are very risky investments. There are tax advantages to them and i would say for some of my clients it's it's a it it forms a a small part of their portfolio i think with with this one in particular it's quite a large proportion i would say in comparison to the size of the portfolio um and i'm wondering whether from what they're saying about the risk he, he is happy to take and then the downturns he is happy to to sort of him and his wife were able to absorb. I'm not sure VCT would necessarily be something I would go into because they can be quite illiquid. They are sort of supposed to be smaller companies that are supposed to become larger companies. You are taking a bit of, a bit of risk, quite a lot of risk in there. So I think he probably needs to look at that a little bit more. Also, he's been driven, by the looks of it, a little bit by cost. VCTs are not cheap investments. They are quite expensive investments charges, yeah. because there's a lot of due diligence that goes into mm-hmm. them. So I think... Now, so the answer to that is yes they should probably form part of someone's portfolio but they should go in with your eyes open and, and a lot of VCTs and EIS enterprise investment schemes now don't take money directly from clients they want you to go through advi- to get advice so that you'd, they, there are no issues later on because yes they're tax advantageous but you, in, especially in, the, in an EIS you could literally lose all your money. Okay, so you, you do need to go into it with your eyes open, and I would probably seek advice on those sort of things.
0: Yeah, can you, can you elaborate a bit on the risks and particularly on VCTs because you're saying they're high risk. You've yes. alluded to smaller companies, can give so, a bit more colour on that. So
2: EISs are probably more, are probably easier to explain because VCTs have sort of certain rules and they're a little bit more complicated. But basically, the reason we get tax relief is because you invest in smaller companies, they become larger companies, mm-hmm. they invest, they, they employ more people. They pay more income tax and they pay more corporation tax. Excellent, but because you're investing in smaller companies, they become larger companies. Those smaller companies could become dead companies. So <laughs> you're taking a risk, and because of that risk, you're getting some tax advantages. So you, you've got to understand the tax advantages you're getting here are not just well. On a VCT, you get 30% income tax, rel- sorry, 30% tax relief. So they're a tax reducer. So if you paid let's say £10,000 into a VCT, you get £3,000 of tax relief. And if you only paid £3,000 of tax in that year, you could reduce it all. And the dividends are tax-free. But to get those two things, you are taking a risk, which the in Revenue is expecting you to take a risk to try and make the in Revenue richer. So they expect to see a return on the money you're getting. So... There is no such thing as a free lunch, so understand why you're getting a tax relief before you invest, I would say.
0: Hence the name Venture Capital.
2: Yes, Thank you,
0: Michael. Some really helpful suggestions. Increasing numbers of investors are interested in putting their money to work in a way that is responsible or ethical, and as a result, increasing numbers of funds which purport to invest in this way are becoming available. But although increased choice is usually something to be welcomed, Mm -hmm. in this case is a problem. Dave, what is this?
1: Yeah, I I think it, it comes down to confusion, really. I mean, say you look at things like ethical funds, they've gradually become more mainstream over recent decades. But you've also seen different kind of forms of preference from investors. You know, some investors like funds that are kind of environmentally responsible, some like funds that invest in companies with good corporate governance. And there hasn't really been a narrowly defined set of terms. Um, so if you're an, an investor, it's, it's perhaps a little bit confusing trying to find, um, you know, what fund might suit your your needs. And um, people often use these terms like ethical or sustainable, for example, pretty interchangeably. So I was just going to follow on from that as well. Mm. The,
2: the, the thing about that also is it opens a can of worms with clients. Mm. If you're reading how the fund is supposed to invest and you say, for example, no more than 10% in pornography, the client might think, (laughs) 8% in pornography, pornography," whereas another fund doesn't have to disclose that. And Mm. you sort of think, wait a minute, I don't want that proportion. Mm. So although they they probably have a lot less than other funds, Mm. by disclosing it opens a can of worms for people to think, Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a minute. I, I wasn't thinking there was anything like that in any of these fights. There the, the, might
0: not be any at all. No, exactly. I mean, just a disclaimer. Yeah.
2: And, and it, it's just a sort of, you know, we're yeah. trying our best. But because yeah. of that, it, it sets off alarm bells in people's heads. to go, <laughs> but does that mean you. And it, it's, it's quite an interesting sort of, you know, thought pattern for people to. <laughs> to
0: think yeah there you go yeah <laughs> yeah but as uh, a good news this is the investment association um the trade body which represents uk asset managers is trying to do something about this um, dave, dave what's it doing
1: yeah so um
0: not pornography no. yeah yeah
1: Okay, moving away from <laughs> pornography but um <laughs> so so they recently released uh they do an annual survey of the investment um industry and um they you know they they spoke a bit about this issue that we've outlined they're Basically looking at bringing about a bit more clarity around the terms used. um, And this may well feed into things like, you know, how providers label things, how uh, fund data is categorized. um, And in their latest survey, they look at um, how much money is in in responsible uh, investments, as they put it. And they've adopted some definitions from the Global Sustainable Investment Association.
0: Okay, and what what would be examples of some of these definitions?
1: So, uh, I'll give you a couple. One category is integration of ESG factors. So, obviously, that's uh, environmental, social, and governance. So, you include um, ESG factors into your analysis when you're looking for your your holdings. And another example, uh, another popular area is uh, impact and community investing. So targeted investments um often in kind of private markets uh, that are aimed at kind of dealing with you know social problems that kind of thing.
0: Um Dave you highlighted some uh problems of disclaimers on uh, responsible ethical funds um but I just suppose just in in other respects I mean do you think they're labeled in a a clear enough way?
2: So I I would I would like all funds to be labeled in a in a better way so that it's mm. clearer so that in in regard to my example a few minutes mm. ago that all funds should be able to say whether they are positive negative or neutral on certain mm. areas so that if you're investing in you know whatever it is managed fund you should be able to see okay is that ethical or not or or and then you shouldn't just have to look at the ethical funds who are then disclosing it. All funds should sort of have a lot more transparency, and that, you know, this comes back to the Woodford issue that trans- we need to be more transparent mm. about everything, so that people go into investments and know exactly what they're investing in. Are we investing in something that is going to affect the environment or not? And if if we are, we have to make a conscious decision about that.
0: Okay, I mean, just just thinking about all of this, if you were an investor setting out to invest in a responsible ethical way i mean what are the main difficulties
2: well the, the problem is it's 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 the shades of green and mm. and mm. the difference people's different moral views as well one person might say oh, well that that's something which is horrendous where's that thing oh actually i can live with that and once you get into it it's very difficult for an individual to find a fund that they're truly happy with because the fund manager is trying to do their best with the parameters they have and some per- some person might be oh actually I don't agree with that but I do agree with that and another find oh actually they're not doing that and then they end up tying themselves in knots mm-hmm. trying to find the perfect solution to their own mat- uh, morality and everyone's morality is different mm-hmm. so Absolutely. it is an incredibly difficult thing to go into the- I-, I think Basically, all funds should be ethical. I just I I, <laughs> I don't really understand why there is there is a divide. It just seems a very odd thing. You know why why would we invest in things that aren't ethical mm. nowadays? To be honest, so it, it's it's a tricky thing for clients to actually overcome their own moral, morality. I would say.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you think that the what the investment association is doing? Do you think that's going to help? Does it go far enough?
2: As I said, I think all funds should have some sort of ethical um, statements and some sort of ethical. Um, Categorizing, you know, a positive or a negative impact, and you know we've got these these children who are off school today who are comp- campaigning against um, climate change, etc. Mm. I think their time would be better, off, firstly going to school, but secondly going home from school and telling their, their parents to invest in sustainable and ethical funds. If you if they got all their parents and their friends and their aunties and uncles and grandparents to invest in ethical funds. That one trillion you were talking about earlier, if you move that one trillion out of um, open ended fund into ethical investments and sustainable investments, that would change the world instantaneously. If all the money came out of all these companies that were polluting the world and moved into sustainable funds, Mm. the world would change. Mm. That's how different money talks, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that will change the world. So I don't think it's down to the Investment Association. I think it's down to us all to think where are we investing our money? And these children who are already—I'm seeing it with the millennials—asking t- their parents, "What are you investing in, and why have you mm. chosen this investment?" That's why we have our own sustainable balance fund because mm. people are asking, "What are you investing in now? What you know? What are my parents investing in, and how are they making money?" And, mm. and I think the millennials now are thinking, "We were, we we don't want to just have have a, have um, performance at any cost. They want to understand what the cost is." And actually, nowadays, you don't need to give up any performance to, in a sustainable fund because it's,
1: it's they've mostly performed mm. incredibly well as well. Yeah, that myth is kind of over, isn't it? It
2: really is. And, and it's going to be the future as well because mm. all these people who are marching today and they're going to be the investors of tomorrow. Mm. And they're going to be asking a lot more questions, I think, than a lot of the investors at the moment. So I, I think people are changing the world. I, I don't think the Investment Association could change it, I think. Mm. I think money talks and move our funds into all sustainable, balanced, and then the world will be at a better yeah, place.
0: Yeah, yeah. I suppose getting getting back to what you can do. <laughs> yes. um, I suppose the issue is, um, you know, I mean, it's good to do that, but at the moment we've got what we've got, there are a number of ethical funds out there. Perhaps you know, not perfect, not clearly labelled, but it's what we've got. So, if mm-hmm. you an investor wanted to invest that way, and you know, go into one of funds, what are the things that you can do? to ensure that you can get a fund that does meet your criteria?
2: So what I would do is probably write down the things that you worry about and that you care about and then try and translate them into a particular fund that may have a specialist in those areas. And that's that's probably just try try and find something which meets what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to stop the fires in Brazil, try and find something that might invest in, in something that might sort of reduce that. So, you know, try and find things that are focusing on certain areas. You know, we have something the Threadneedle Social Impact Bond, which is, it's a, it's a housing association, and so they try and raise money to invest money in, in, in housing. So if you have a particular cause or a di- particular area you want to help, then try and find a fund that does something along those lines.
0: But just finally, at the moment, are there any responsible ethical funds that you think are actually quite good and have clear and transparent labelling?
2: Well, yes, yeah, so... F- will old one which i have to, to sustain good an yeah, yeah. and the thread needle a thread needle social impact bond is okay. something people could invest in and it's it's helping the, helping people mm. with housing so i think it's a it's, an, and they're it's quite an,
0: clear about what it is and what exactly it yes yeah. that's it yes okay mm. thank you michael some really helpful suggestions there and um see this week's funds news for the full set of global sustainable investment alliance definitions the investment association is adopting uh, and also see our IC Top 100 Funds list for more suggestions on funds that invest via a responsible, ethical or environmental approach. That's all we've got time for today, but uh, have a look at this week's Investors Chronicle or the website at investorschronicle.co.uk for more on investment trusts, drawing a tax-efficient income in retirement and ethical and responsible funds. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.